Hello, and welcome back to the Dealership Fix-It podcast. I'm your host, Brian Croft. We are in episode number 40 right now. Uh, I always can't believe we have more of these. As a side note, I always joked and said I would, if I did one of these, I would do 100 of them and then figure out if it was uh, anybody cared if I did them and if I was any good at it. So we're almost halfway there. Um, today, it is my great honor to have uh, a guy who is a former client of mine, as many years ago now, but uh, I'd also consider him a friend many years uh, now and a very distinguished power sports leader. Um, I want to run a quick sort of a greatest hits style bio of this guy. He is presently the managing principal of Hero Hub. He's the head of strategy in automotive at Williams Forest. He's an adjunct professor of business at Brigham Young Idaho. Prior to these roles, he was the director of channel development at Textron. He was a director of dealer development at Articat. He was a VP of marketing at Motorfist. The guy's name is Jared Burt. Jared and I met in 2000, well, I met him in 2007, is from best of my recollection, in beautiful downtown Rexburg, Idaho. Jared was the dealer principal at Rexburg Motorsports there, and he was there from 96 to 2015. You may know of Rexburg Motorsports because Dealer News had them as a top 100 dealer, I think if I did the math right, nine times. Uh, top 10 dealer, three times. And they had other uh, accolades that I didn't kind of pull into this, but um, I just wanted to give you a quick overview of, of, of who we've got on and why you should listen. Um Jared has many years um, from obviously at the at the level of dealership, but from enthusiast to dealership, right up to some uh, high level OEM exec sort of uh, level experience. So the perspective is there. Uh, Jared, uh, I'd like to thank you for jumping on and, and joining me to do some of this chat today. Welcome to the Dealership Fix It podcast. Thank you, Brian. It It is a privilege to be able to do this with you and we love your audience uh loves these podcasts i think you you bring tremendous insight and value to the industry with these so it's a privilege for me to to uh join you on this podcast well then it's very mutual i appreciate being able to do them and to have somebody like you willing to jump on and have these chats i feel like i must be doing something right and at number 40 today and we're i'm shooting for 100 before i'll know if i'm any good at it Hopefully, every, each and every step, I'm able to provide the same or better value. So good. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're a pro. I'm sure we'll, we'll be looking for hundreds of podcasts for many years to come. <laughs> <laughs> I see no end in sight. We can, I can jibber, jibber jabber forever, so we can, we can find something. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> would, um, would you um, give kind of a whatever encapsulate i know it's you know to say what's your life story that sort of deal but give us a bit of an overview for what listeners of the of the podcast who are going to be dealership uh whether they're dealer principals managers uh workers at shops they're maybe reps they're you name it anybody that interacts in power sports is my sort of core audience and give them an uh, overview of kind of who you are and what you what you got going on and where you've been 
Yeah, it's been a fun journey, and and a lot of it um, is intertwined in power sports. I started as a young boy in Idaho, riding in potato fields when the snow fell on a 1979 Arctic Cat Pantera. So we'd go me and my brothers would go rip around in the snow and that's really that's that's kind of what there was to do in the winter time in idaho in rural idaho and uh so just just enjoyed that um uh playing around in fields on the old hondas you know the atc 90 the three wheelers back in the day that dates me but uh (laughs) but that's that was life in rural idaho um, fast forward to the the mid '90s, and Polaris Polaris was uh, ha- had a tough go in the mountain snowmobile market with the introduction of the 1996 Ultra RMK. It, it was kind of a pig. It was a one hit wonder, but the next year they totally redeemed themselves, and that's luckily when w- our timing was lucky when we started Rexburg Motorsports with the introduction of the 1997 Polaris 700 RMK. And that was, that was a fantastic snowmobile for mountain riding. It, uh, it really helped us to have great product to launch the business. So we were, we were a little, uh, little Polaris snowmobile ATV shop on main street, Rexburg, Idaho, and, uh, and, and just starting out with, there, there were three of us, myself, uh, manager of sales, and we, we had a great mechanic. We went and found the best, best mechanic that, uh, that we could find in Southeast Idaho. And, and so that's how we got started. We thought if we, if we can offer outstanding service, um, build on the core of, of that great service, have some great products to sell. We, hopefully we can build this so we can sell a hundred units a year was my goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's, uh, th- that's how I got started in the business. And, and what was helpful for me was growing up in my family's farm equipment dealership. My granddad started an international harvester dealership in the, in the eighties, uh, early eighties. And my father and his brothers took that over. And so I grew up in the, in the dealership and, uh, that helped give me a foundation, uh, for, for selling and servicing, uh, customers with, with power sports, but it was a lot more fun. Um, it was a lot more fun. So from there, um, Rexburg Motorsports grew organically for a while. We quickly hit 100 units that uh, in, in a year, and uh, we grew that organically for a while. And then, and then we started to experience bigger growth as we acquired over time four other dealerships in town. And so we that necessitated building a new facility. We wanted to operate everything together. So we were one of the consolidators in the, in the early to mid two thousands as we acquired other dealerships and, and brought in, um, Suzuki was first, 
I guess, in the late 90s. And then we brought in Honda, Yamaha, Kawasaki. And um, we, we ended up with all four lines of snowmobiles, which was, which was unique to have all four lines of sleds in one location. Um, and, uh, and so with, with all those brands, um, you know, we built a, built a facility from the ground up, built a big service department. And, uh, from, we went from 100 units in a year to, to where we were doing a couple hundred per month, uh, on average. And it, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of, a lot of, uh, stress, but, you know, building that and building a family, the Rexburg Motorsports family, which to me was the great employees and their families that gave their heart and soul to the business. Um, you know, a lot of passion and a lot of talent that, that was, you know, something that I had a lot of pride in was, was our people. And then the family of customers, and what we really did is focused to, to grow and retain customers by focusing on the customer experience. And, um, you know, so we can talk about that later, but, but that's, that's really what we, what we tried to do to set, set apart the business. And we knew that we had to retain customers um, in, in order to survive. In, in 2014, I decided, you know, I'd, I had dropped out of college. I was, I did a couple years to get as much information I could, as I could get to start Rexburg Motorsports and, and it was helpful, but I ended up dropping out and, and I decided to, um, I wanted to finish, uh, my formal education and I wanted to pivot to the manufacturing side and help, help the industry at that level. And so to do that, I, I sold out, uh, early 2015 and made a transition. And my first landing spot, as I, um, I, I finished up my, my undergrad and then started the, the MBA program at, uh, Brigham Young University in Utah. Um, I started an executive MBA program so that I could continue to work and, and so I was going down every other weekend on Fridays and Saturdays for 14 hours of classes every other week. I did that for two years. Mm. But d- during that, I was able to, uh, to work on the, on the manufacturing side of the business. And I started with Motor Fist. Are you familiar with, are you familiar with Motor Fist? Yes. Well, I, I, I'm not a uh, snowmobile guy currently, but I know, yeah, I definitely know uh, of the brand and, and that it's... Um based in Idaho, right? Yeah, exactly. So fun, fun brand. Um, and this was, this was started up by a good friend of mine, Brad Ball and Motor Fist was where I kind of got my start on, on that side of the industry. And it was a great, great opportunity for me. I, I managed the marketing and international business. I had the opportunity to work with our distributor in Russia and, um, and we had, we had some distribution in the Scandinavia market, um, as well as Russia visited Russia and, and the dealers there. And that was, that was, uh, a really, 
really great learning experience for me to see and understand how the, that business works overseas. Um, see these wealthy Russians and how excited they get about getting on a snowmobile. Um, so that, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, and that really set me up to make the transition over to Articat, who had acquired, they acquired Motor Fist. Um, Motor Fist was a, uh, you know, kind of a hardcore um, mountain, technical mountain snowmobile gear line. So, so uh, started as a mountain gear uh, line for snowmobilers, and then it expanded to to help with with uh, all types of snowmobilers. The Flatlanders ended up loving the gear, but uh, you know, I not to, not to break up your sort, of, and I want you to continue on. But I guess it, as you say that, it makes me think like, isn't that isn't that almost backwards versus some of the other? gear companies for snowmobile with, with the core of, I think the snowmobile riding population being, as you'd said, flatlanders, doesn't it generally, don't they seem to go to yeah. that audience first and then they try to adapt their stuff for mountain? Yeah, exactly. And you see that with, you saw that with snowmobile manufacturing in the early nineties yeah. yeah. where the manufacturers would start with a short track sled and they, you know, Skidoo and Polaris, Articat, they'd all, take the flatland sleds, the short tracks, and they just put longer tracks on them, eventually build them with paddles. And you saw that with, with clothing. Um, they just mountain snowmobilers, they'd see what we'd complain about and they'd fix it. The, the puffy jackets, we'd get all sweaty because we're standing up. It's a very, um, very interactive, athletic, you know, extenuating uh, experience riding in deep powder and in the mountains. And so we needed layering. And so, so the, they adapted clothing and snowmobiles to the mountain riding style. But yeah, you're exactly right. Started the other way. Um, Motor Fist was unique because it started as a, a gear company engineered for mountain riders. Okay. So, so from, uh, from Motor Fist, uh, Chris Metz, the CEO of Articat, one day uh, asked if, if I could come to visit headquarters, which was just near Minneapolis there. And uh, I, I visited and uh, met with him. And I, I still remember that he asked me, um, he asked me a few questions and then asked me if I would take the role as director of viewer development for Arctic Cat. And, uh, and that was, uh, that was exciting to me because I knew some of the entrepreneurial pursuits. I knew that some of the direction, you know, and the turnaround efforts that were taking place. Um, Arctic had at the time had, had been going through some really tough times um, when Chris took over as CEO. And, and they wanted to refocus on becoming a product company and, and improving the customer experience. And so a steady stream of new products was, was the focus while I was at Articat is, uh, you know, we introduced new products like the, the Wildcat double X and eventually the, the alpha snowmobile with the single beam rear suspension. So some innovative products, but, but, uh, this was a focus for Chris Metz and his team 
And uh, so I commuted to Minneapolis um, uh, for, for a couple years, and then Textron acquired Articat. Um, this, was, uh, this was exciting times um, because all of, the, all of the leadership that I worked with at Articat um, was kind of disappeared overnight and I was working with this new team at Textron. Um, you know, over time they, they pretty quickly decided to change the name of the off-road vehicles to Textron off-road. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, that, that decision was reverted back to branding, uh, branding them Articat again early this year. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but really, uh, interesting, and fun ride with Textron as well, because uh, it opened me up to a new world of of some other brands. The EasyGo brand being one of those. Uh, so I was channel development director for North America for for the consumer brands, Articat, uh, Textron Off Road, EasyGo. We did some Cushman, and so these dealer networks were a little more complex and. Uh, and it was fun to travel throughout North America and visit hundreds of dealers um, and uh, understand the, the unique challenges and, and the opportunities that were there. Um, I, I left Textron the end of last year. And since then, I've, I've uh, started uh, and co-founded with a couple great partners, Hero Hub. And, uh, and I've been working on that throughout the year. It's been one of the funnest years of my life. And, uh, so that's where, that's where I am today. I probably went on too much. No, you're, you're doing great. Appreciate appreciate the time. So that, that gets me to the day anyway. (laughs) And now, so with Hero Hub, uh, I think your current focus with that is, is, uh, to help you partner with OEMs, for example, that sort of level, uh, within the business. It's not, um, you know, dealing with individuals or dealers, you're, you're working with them, um, in, in ways to, to make right. sure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So our focus is, is on the automotive RV power sports industries and really OEMs and businesses that have networks of dealers that they use to, as a channel, primary channel to distribute their products. One of the things that, I've seen as a, is a problem or something that's missing is really the technology to create a seamless customer experience, um, that, that blends both the digital and the physical environment. And, uh, and it's still today quite fragmented and what hero hub seeks to do uh, is our, our platform, our cloud platform, helps manufacturers include their dealers in every aspect of the, the uh, online buying experience for customers. Um, customers that buy online, um, and I, I did a lot of consumer research on this, uh, both during my MBA program and, and at other points, but the consumer research that I've I've conducted has shown that customers, uh, especially power sports customers is what we focused on, 
have a high preference uh, to have the support, have a dealer-supported purchase program online. Um, Customers uh, end up having uh, a far from ideal experience when there's not dealer support for for products that they that they research online and this could be anything from a motorcycle to to the accessories so a customer centered dealer supported OEM directed uh, program that uh, that seeks to, to delight those customers give the customers what they need and and leverage all the services local services and support that dealers offer uh, when customers buy online. Well, I think when you and I chatted about this uh, before, I think what I was the most happy to hear, obviously through the different research that you've done, uh, is that, you know, the model of, you know, dealerships are not going to go away in the future based on at least these findings and the expectation on what, you know, the research showed that, that they, they definitely want to dig in. Consumers expect, of course, a lot. We all do, but they expect to be able to do and, and interact and get all of their sort of needs fulfilled on the questions. A lot of that in a virtual or a, you know, virtual environment, but they still rely on and still prefer the physical sort of uh, pickup and process and, and going to the dealerships for that. Yeah, you know it's interesting. Shopping for accessories. Eighty three percent of customers. Uh, power sports owners that we talk to buy accessories online. Um, but less than 10% said that they, uh, so, so I guess the way I should say that is 90 over 90% uh, preferred to have dealer support uh, through that process. In other words, they, they prefer for the products to be fulfilled by and supported by the dealers. And an example of that is if, if a customer um, today, you can go on Polaris, Polaris.com and buy a winch for your Polaris Ranger. However, uh, today that winch is just, it's shipped by Polaris directly to your home and now the customer's left to try to figure out either how to install it or find someone that can install it for them. Carry it back to the and, dealership. <laughs> yeah, and they end it back in the dealership, and it's just a fragmented process. It'd be much preferable for customers if that, if that winch that they bought online had the option to have that winch installed and... Uh, and pick that up from a local dealer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an opportunity to schedule that installation and to go to the dealer and find find out if that's in the dealer's inventory to pick it up. Um, customers have a have a high preference for uh, buying from the local dealer. The frustration is when they see a huge selection online. And they don't know how to how to take advantage of the selection, but still utilize the dealer services. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem we seek to solve. 
that's yeah, one of the problems. Disconnect there. They're they're seeing they're seeing the things with their eyes, and then they're saying, "Why can't I get them here?" And they're looking at their hands, of course, that are empty with not the product in it, right? Absolutely. Do you feel like have uh, <clears throat> as you know as we talked about that a little bit before? I was thinking like, man, I wonder if you know as much as dealers feel like they uh, you know have been missing out on that and how you know Amazon's killing us that sort of you know mentality. That maybe I wonder if have they almost been given a bit of a pass by their customers who continue to deal with that fragmented process because I don't know if consumers give you know normal other consumables in their lives as much of a pass and are willing to, I'm not willing to go to the, I don't know, as we, we talked before, I'm not willing to go to the phone store, you know, <laughs> for my phone, you know, I, I, I look online and so on and so forth. The next thing you know, I'm in a chat conversation with a real or fake individual on a chat on Verizon site and I've got a phone ship into my house. Um, do you feel like, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Something, something that the PTV or the golf car, um, as I was exposed to that at Textron with EasyGo, something those dealers are really, really good at is the concierge service where a dealer is, is set up to respond to pickup and delivery and mobile services. And in power sports, consumers are more likely, you know, power sports users are much more likely to have their own trailer where an, the owner of a golf car maybe doesn't, but something because of that, it's necessitated that those dealers that sell golf cars are, are really good at, um, at delivery and pickup to customers in their local market. And I, I think that there will be an increased demand for, for customers in power sports to be able to identify quickly what's in inventory so that they can, they can have a same day pickup because same day is still still better than the new Amazon one day prime. Right. Right. So if I can, if I can, on my mobile device, see that a dealer has this in stock and I can get it same day so that I can, I can get what I need for my ride mm -hmm. this weekend. That that's better. The other thing um, that that dealers will need to get good at is the the mobile services or pickup and delivery in a way that it's it's not cumbersome that this can be scheduled on a on a mobile device and uh, and and dealers provide that hyper local service to be able to respond with by bringing the product to you or bringing the solution wherever you are, whether it's a storage unit at your house, uh, at work or whatever. So in the future, I think that's critical. Um, dealers have, will, will likely have delivery departments. I was, um, I was actually sitting with one of my clients this week who's a power sports dealer and, um, we're sitting there chatting about, you know, cycle trader business and different things. And I happened to look up and in his showroom, I'm dealing with the general manager, and as I look up and in his showroom, he's got a a cool little cartoony sign with a you know kind of an old school little pickup truck, the motorcycle on the back, little cartoon character, and it said you know free delivery. And in the bottom, it said like 50 mile radius on new on new motorcycles. And I said, oh, is that new for you? And he's like, no, we've done that for years. That cartoon's really old. 
And I said, huh, I, I guess I didn't know that. Um, do your customers know that? And he looks at me and looks back at the sign and he's like, well, I think so. <laughs> and I said, huh, well, I didn't know it till now. And if you had it a long time, my bad, but kind of your bad. Like, should we include that in, in your advertising here? And should you put that on your website? And he said something along the lines, I think it's on the website. You probably have to, it's probably buried, I guess is what I'm imagining. We didn't go look at that, but, um, I love that. It, it became a conversation of like, Oh, oops. Some, you know, sorry, my bad. I should have, if I knew that, I guess I didn't know that, but here we are, let's change that. And, uh, and it's something they do. And he says they, they do them all the time, but do, does everybody know that's shopping or, or looking at their stuff online? It looks like not. And maybe they get to that part of the conversation later in the sales process. But I thought, man, pull that forward. Make that, you know, something that you're really offering up front. So we're, we're changing that, at least on the on the advertising side of it. And, and I'm sure on his website, too. But it goes right along with what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's spot on, Brian. And and dealers that I've visited, I, I don't know of any power sports dealer that wouldn't, if you, if you ask, Hey, I bought that new new bike from you. Would you deliver it to my place? I'm 10 miles away. There's no dealer that that wouldn't accommodate the customer. But I think you're exactly right. Making it simple, um, seamless, stated up front, so that so that that's easy to request and schedule that. Um, best case scenario from from your mobile phone. Yeah. And so, yeah, ab- absolutely. That's the difference. I guess. And, and further on that, as I'm thinking this through again, he went on further to say that as he's discussing, he said, basically, you know, whether it's somebody that's ridden their whole life, a new rider that just got their endorsement, that sort of thing, the whole gamut. He said, you know, we, we realized that when people would get their motorcycle, obviously they have to go there and do their paperwork, but ultimately that first ride of a new motorcycle can be very exciting a lot of things going through their head. It's a brand new machine. He's like, we'd prefer to drop it to them in their comfortable environment and let them do their initial ride, not to have to get home, but to go from home and do a loop and be in their own surroundings. And to me, that was like, yeah, yeah, that's totally, you're, you're empowering that customer and making them comfortable and making it all easy for them. So I, I love that, Brian. And, and test rides, test rides are, are so important. Um, it, it can be nerve wracking. I saw it at, at our dealership and we were, we were big on demo rides, but I saw that our, our dealership where if it's a first riding experience, even if they were a rider, but riding a new bike for the first time can be nerve wracking mm-hmm. and intimidating when you're not in your own element. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting, so getting, you know, judged, starting getting out, judged by everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in oh, your mind yeah. at least right it, it, potentially absolutely it is yeah so no i love that that you take the demo to to them um it might be at their place of work and this this level of service and customer experience is something that's becoming more expected maybe not expected um to the extent that it's not possible or easily arranged today but uh but customers because of what they're experiencing with experiencing with other consumer goods have definitely have higher expectations and as an industry if we don't rise up and provide 
higher levels of customer experiences, then I, I think that could impair uh, impair the industry. Well, and Sorry. I have to think, yeah. you know, I think of all these examples through the years of, of, of interacting with, you know, uh, customers in a in some sort of environment where I was at a shop or in, near shops or working with shops. And I think about, you know, the the sort of the margin squeeze or whatever you want to call it, the, the, you know, we're not profitable. It's not profitable anymore these days. And I think about examples of well, where could you have provided something in excess of their expectations? Is there anything? And some people are like, no, there's nothing. People are, they want it all. They want it for nothing. And I tend to, to, to disagree and say, well, there's always something. Find a way to exceed that expectation, provide that, get to that level of customer experience where you're providing all that. And, and obviously then the conversation is a lot less about just the dollar. And I, and I know that some buyers are just going to be about the dollar, but if you can make the experience just out of, you know, in the stratosphere compared to their expectations like that, you know, providing whether it's a demo ride at their location, you haul the truck out there. Is there cost incurred? Absolutely. Does it maybe change the conversation about the purchase price? Absolutely, in my opinion. I love that. You know, one interesting point of uh, a data point that we found in our research was that about two-thirds, two out of three power sports owners preferred to purchase from a small mom-pop dealership where they could have, they had access to the owner operator. Right. And, and that was interesting to us. They also, as we dug deeper, um, they were willing to pay a little more for, uh, for, for the service levels, you know, so you're saying at the, at the, what's can, what would be perceived as a smaller, where you could interact with uh, all levels of uh, ownership that would they be yeah. to pay more there? Yeah, absolutely. And they associated small, and it doesn't mean that if you're a, if you're a large multi-line dealership today, it doesn't mean that you can't meet those expectations. Um, I think in some ways it can be harder. Um, but what they, what, what the customers associated that small mom pop dealership with was the, um, the higher levels of, of service and support that they were, you know, they, they're more likely to go out riding with them. Um, and if they, if they needed something such as a bike delivered or a part after hours, that that service was, was something they highly valued from that local shop. And so is there a way to, instead of, um, having that available upon request or, or need, immediate need, just like the dealer that you gave the example of, instead of that, is there a way that we can turn that around and, and that the, the dealers can proactively market and enable customers to tap into those services in a very simple way from, from their mobile phone? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, where we're at. And I think, um, th- and I guess this is why I was excited to have you on is because obviously it's not like you are, you know, a guy who's dealing with OEMs currently and, and you're like, well, I've never worked at a shop or I've never obviously, you know, been at it. You obviously have that 
ground level experience and to look at that and and know that there's a disconnect and be an advocate for for connecting that and like something like this jumping on my podcast to talk to you know a group of uh, dealership folks in different areas of the dealership to have wrap their heads around where you got to go where we're headed um let's i'm going to take a quick break let's jump off grab, grab a quick break you'll hear a little commercial here and then uh, i'll be back and we'll jump back in thanks thanks brian hey we're back um so we went to break there and i realized that certain dealers knowing having worked at many dealerships and interacting with many i wonder if certain dealers heard the first half of this and if they didn't quite exactly listen to what all the details were i wonder if if any of them began to push back on thinking maybe that what we're talking about is uh, is dealers being maybe excluded from the process and, and the future's coming and the dealerships won't be able to provide this in fact i think what we're talking about and what you've said um is that you know there's going to be a shift dealers it's their opportunity to from their perspective as well as folks like you who, who you work with at the oem level to connect those two where the dealerships are not out not outside the process but in fact engaged right into it because that's what the consumers are are expecting is that is that accurate yeah absolutely i call it unified commerce so where, where the oem unites with the dealers and then creates a harmonized customer experience and Really, yeah, you're you're right on, Brian. In that, what this is, what what the important task to do here, which is a difficult problem to solve, because the the OEM has to has to take a leadership role in this to enable it. But but the the OEMs need to unite with the dealers to execute a digital marketing and selling strategy. And make sure that that the dealer's services are are always offered, fulfilled by the dealer. You know, the, the online sales being fulfilled by dealers through the OEM brand channel, as well as aligning all of the dealer's services that they have um, with, with those online sales. So, you know, assuming that, you know, the audience is varied in, in their like sort of a level of experience at dealerships. So, you know, I, I always continue to think back to when I started this, it was because I remember being a parts guy who had retail experience working in retail stores that weren't power sports. And then I went into power sports thinking I wanted to do what I loved for a living. Um, knowing that we could be talking to somebody who's a parts person or a service person or anybody within the organization that may not kind of grasp where you're talking about, is it, I don't know if it's even a thing anymore. I think you had said something I asked you before and I can't remember your answer on it, but I remember when I was a Scott rep with Scott uh, sports. Now it was Scott USA. And back then they were trying to do the Shopatron deal, right? It was like, we don't want to exclude dealers from the process. We want to plug dealers in, but we want to better help them, plug into the audience that may be on the manufacturer's website and give that consumer that sort of experience. And I don't know where that ever went. I wasn't with Scott, but for a few years, um, is that sort of the concept that we're talking just to kind of make sure those folks know from a basic concept, what, what we're talking about? I, I, I no. the short answer is no. Okay. And here's why is, is a Shopatron. Um, I think, I think they took a, a step to, offer a marketplace out to dealers where they could 
become a shipper or to fulfill products ordered online, but there's still, it's still not locally tied to the, the services that dealers provide locally, which is orientation of products, um, installation, repair, mobile services, delivery, same day store pickup that, that enables really none of that. Okay. And so I think that's where we miss the mark. There's also um, no Shopatron does not enable the publishing of dealer local dealer services. Just like that picture hanging on the wall, no one knew mm-hmm. that they offered this delivery service. They're they're selling um, they're selling a secret at that time, right? They're no one yeah. knows they they've got these great things going on. I guess I only use it because that's my limit. Yeah, my limited perspective was that the concept of Shopatron, and I'm not trying to drop a bunch of their name, but that's my only exposure to the concept. But obviously what you're saying is that sort of basic concept, but on steroids as it should be more seamless, you know, go online, do all your shopping, whether it's for, uh, you know, accessories or potentially, I don't know, units and, and services, but it's all there and they can much more easily interact, you know, execute on, on becoming an owner of that product or service. Right. Absolutely. Yep. The, I think that, uh, that, that says it well, that, uh, you know, the dealer, it's a dealer, um, focused and dealer supported, not, not just, uh, if the dealer has it, they'll, they'll ship it somewhere. Um, this customer wants local support and service mm-hmm. and that's what we need to get back to mm-hmm. is, is offering that. You know, uh, we, I think we chatted about it previously, but you know, I'm, I'm in the business for whatever, 20 something years, kind of along the lines of what you have been doing. And, and, and I think it's funny that I still, you know, I have local dealerships that can do fall all over themselves for my business. Right. And I'm in the business. I know them, they're willing to do business with me, but it's still funny to me that when I get something in my mind that I need right then. You know, I, I remember thinking like, oh yeah, I need this for my bike, right? And how do I know? I'm sure anybody will order it for me, right? It's that same concept. Well, I can order it for myself. It's kind of that, right? And I want to give my business to my local shops. And I remember thinking, man, I wish there was a way I could go and look and see what's where and who has what in stock. But I, I, I guess I just felt like we were a million years away from that. But the, the concept that I want to go to my local shop, I want the product. If they don't have it, who has it? You know, how quickly can I get it? But uh, and if and if we don't solve that quicker than you know sooner than later, then the customer frustration will impair our ability to increase ridership. I I think that you're describing exactly what's going through every customer's mind, and uh, and that's the. The crazy thing today is that a lot of a lot of parts, huge volumes of parts and accessories are being sold online um, directly to to consumers. It's taking two, three, four days a week to arrive. They get the wrong part. I mean, it's a frustrating experience. Even though there's, you know, they say they have the convenience of not going to the dealership. But how amazing would it be if a customer through their mobile phone could 
could see I can pick this up today and I, I can I can push this request and they know that I'm coming in this afternoon. The parts department has it set out for you and uh, and maybe they even see that you you're pulling up if you're in a hurry just as some of these other mass retailers mm -hmm. have set it up and they bring the accessory out to your truck for you when you arrive. Yep. So there's, there's a lot of possibilities with technology to make the dealers, the heroes in this well, process. You know, it's, and I think back to my days at, in parts and I know it still occurs. <clears throat> I, you know, I'm ordering, you know, from my local shop, I'm ordering some tires. Okay. I can put tires on if I need to, you know, order me these tires. Okay, great. We get them going. But you know, the, 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 the seamless sort of process would have been that I went to their site, you know, I interact, maybe I'm live chatting with a guy or, or maybe, um, you know, it's, it's plug and play, just touch the deal and pick out the tires and want, put them in the cart. Maybe the system or that individual, if I'm chatting with somebody says, well, yeah, okay, we can, you know, we'd be picking them up. They, they're estimated to, to, you know, we've got them here they're estimated to be here on this day. Um, should we deliver those to your house or would you like to have us pick up your motorcycle and have them installed? I, I think about all these, where it could go. Um, do you feel like yes. that's part of the direction then? Absolutely. Just giving the customers options to make it the, the most convenient experience possible. So all of those scenarios may be ideal. And it's understanding what, what is the ideal situation for the customer and does the local dealer have the resources to do that? Um, yes, our local dealers are, are more than capable. It's just a matter of serving up those options to customers and connecting them with the dealers through, through technology. Well, and, and I'd been reading, you know, you've been putting out, I think it's the last several months, you've been putting out um, some sort of a, um, an article on LinkedIn, and I'm not sure where else you, you post them. That's where I happen across them. But um, you had put one out here a handful of days, a couple of days ago um, about AIM Expo because you went. And um, I was curious. It's funny because I, you know, I didn't go, but I remember thinking, oh, I, you know, it's not my deal. I, I do uh, advertising here locally. Of course, I have this podcast. Maybe I could go next year as the podcast guy. We're doing this deal, but I you need to. Yeah. I, well, it's funny because I didn't go, but as I started seeing all the social media from the dealers, they're like doing their live videos and different pictures. And I immediately had non-buyers remorse. <laughs> Maybe I should have gone, you know, but ultimately you, uh, everyone you, felt that way. Yeah. You went, you went and, uh, and it sounds like, uh, you had a great time and there was a lot, a lot of real positive, um, that you shared in that article. Would you mind chatting about that a little bit? Yeah, so so my takeaways from the AIM Expo this year were were very clear, um, and I appreciate the leadership from the Motorcycle Industry Council. In their general session, they laid it out, and the the challenge for the industry and Harley Davidson, their their objective is to increase riders in the United States market by a million by I think twenty twenty three. And, and this is the same pursuit that the Motorcycle Industry Council seeks is to increase ridership. So what they did, and they described this to, to the dealers and industry in the general session, but they outlined the research project that they just completed to understand different profiles of customers. And so they created, created personas and 
they looked at motorcyclists that ride, that consider themselves riders, almost riders, and then interested in becoming a rider, but not a rider yet. And, and as you look at those three buckets and get a deep understanding of those customers and what they're, what they're looking for and what it would take to bring them along their journey to becoming a rider if they're not a rider or if, they, if, they're, if they're kind of a rider to get them riding more. And there is, there is some big opportunity for us to achieve this as a industry if we work together, if dealers and manufacturers, distributors unite in this effort, there are key things that we can do to delight, delight and help them along their journey. So they, they call this the culture code of motorcycling, and it uh, helps understand, they've helped us understand the behavioral science of what, uh, what these customer types are looking for. And it, it really aligns a lot with creating the experiences that, that we're talking about, that we've been talking about today creating experiences that just make it, you know, at a high level, making it super easy for someone to become a, a, a writer. Mm-hmm. And, and then beyond that, helping them um, achieve the, the goals, the identity, the, um, the, the, to come into the culture and create that culture that, that motorcycling uh, provides. And so that's what it, that's what's exciting is the the focus of the MIC is spot on that we've got to increase riders and they see that this is a big collective effort we need to educate we need to provide better experiences and uh, and and we we have a deep understanding of of who those customers are I think I think the dealers already know you know, they know the culture code because they live it. They're on the front lines every day. You know, the MIC, we, we let them do the research project, which they needed to do, which which is great. They can let the OEMs know. But I think the dealers kind of already know. Mm-hmm. Um, they're out riding with their customers, uh, if they're, and they're listening to them. And so they, they understand this, and they see new entrants coming in and, and what that looks like. and And so... That, that's really at AIM Expo. Um, that initiative was exciting for me. I was disappointed that that wasn't broadcasted live to, to everyone that wasn't there because it was so important. Now, and, and I even looked um, after reading your article, I looked and, and on the MIC site, I didn't see it anywhere. I don't think they keep up like, you know, maybe they don't, um, you know, maybe they get shared out via other sources like, you know, like yourself or, you know, dealer news or whatever, talk about what they talked about, but I didn't see anything on their site. So maybe that's an area where they could, uh, sort of ratchet that up. And, um, I'm not calling out MIC. I think they do great work. Obviously <laughs> I am. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> MIC, you've been called out. <laughs> you need to, you need to get those words out. You've got great, uh, great info that just needs to be better shared. So there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then the, the whole context, the whole program of the indie of the expo, which used to be the indie expo where I'd go buy a third of my parts and accessories for the year, you know, I'd get flooring for months and, Mm -hmm. 
and nice discounts that I could go negotiate with my sweet negotiating skills, my crystal ball. Mm-hmm. Well, today it's different. We have rich meat parts managers have portals with, with awesome content and media where they can make buying decisions without a static display and a salesperson describing it. And so much more of the purchasing is done more efficiently. There's more frequent orders being, being done so that you balance your inventory better. And, and so it's better, but the AIM Expo is and needs to evolve to be a more experiential event that adds value to the viewer experience. Um, and that's really what's missing. We've, we've lost participation of dealers at the AIM Expo uh, at the scale that it was 10 years ago at the Indy uh, Expo. And so, you know, as a dealer, though, I'd be there just to ride the products I sell and, you know, competitive products because, the you know, I think there were seven manufacturers there this year. You can go ride all those bikes. Um we definitely need more participation, especially from the big players like Polaris and Harley. But uh, they're getting better. They're getting it figured out. And I think that AIM Expo is well worth the investment in time for, if you're in the industry, if you're a dealer, plan to go next year. Because the face-to-face, the interactions, the education, um, it's becoming a more interactive event. And uh, it needs to be the, the same way that we need to provide um, a better experience for our customers, the, the end users, the motorcyclists. Do How many days long was the AIM deal? So it's a week. It's motorcycle industry week. But there's two days that, that's open to the industry and dealers. And then, and then the final two days are open to consumers, which is fantastic because customers in the area can come and, and see the product displays, do the demo rides as well. And it's a, it's a great opportunity for media to come in and get the word out on, on all these brands that are there and, uh, and customers uh, come in and have a great experience. If you have everyone there anyway, I think it's, I think it's great to pull Pulling everybody, pulling the dealers, the media, the customers, and do it all. But two days for the dealer event. Okay. And then the consumers, or I'm sorry, the distributors, you know, obviously that's a different day. But the distributors, I know um, some of the big players weren't there. I don't know what their plans are for next year. I know that everybody's kind of started uh, figuring out their own, you know, their own program, their own shows or, or whatever. Is that, um, you know, by the time if that gets built out, does it need, I mean, obviously it probably can't be longer than a week event, but... Um, what do you, what do you kind of foresee as the best way for that to morph that the other distributors, uh, get involved and, and, uh, plan to go next year or the year after sort of thing, or does, uh, aim need to make multiple shows like a twice a year sort of thing? Well, look, it's never going to be the same as it was. It's never going to be, uh, you know, go, go do your big booking orders with Western power and Tucker Rocky. Some of them have their own shows and, mm-hmm. and more of the ordering, like I said, is, is done in the comfort of your, of the parts manager's office where he has access to all the data and history and, and, and videos and, and great content online. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think that it would be great for the distributors to participate, um, from a, um, you know, an education and, 
I think, interactive workshops. I, I talked to a dealer recently that said, hey, I'm, I'm not going to do my booking orders there, but but come and let's do helmet workshops, five minutes each, so we can learn about the learn about the trends and the new products and give the dealers information. Isn't so it, I don't think it's going to be how, how it has been in the past, but we can do it in a way that adds tremendous value to dealers. Isn't it funny that as we're talking about this, this we're essentially talking about a macro version of what the dealers right need to do as far as making there's, there's so much going on. You have to come to the dealership or you're going to want that as part of your, um, part of your process. Right. And, and as you'd said, the, the research shows you that that's the case anyway, but <clears throat> the fact that a show like this, the same one, I, like I say, within the second day of seeing people's posts, I regretted not taking a couple days off and going <laughs> to the thing. So, you know, that, that indicates, you know, what, you know, that they're, 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 you know, stepped out in the lead for this and dealers need to follow, I think, that approach. Obviously, be involved with it, but follow the approach with. Well, it's the same regret that a customer feels when the brick and mortar dealership's just down the road and he buys, he buys that accessory online and has it shipped to his home. Yep. There's a there's a guilty feeling there, <laughs> and and so rather than have that, let's give let's give more reasons to include dealers in that whole process, right? Because because yeah, it's kind of like you said, AIM Expo, and the evolution of what's happened there is a microcosm of of consumer behavior. So just yeah. as dealers, they're like, well. Uh, there's better ways than driving, you know, flying to AIM Expo to order, do, to do my booking orders. I can do it from the comfort of my own office. Right. Well, same is true for customers. They feel, you know, I'd rather shop, get information and make a buying decision based off information I can get on my mobile phone. Mm-hmm. And so, but they still, they still want the dealer involved in that. So yeah, it's, we've been talking about this throughout, but that's exactly uh, the evolution that's taken place can be, you know, like I said, it's a microcosm of the bigger consumer behavior landscape and the retail landscape. Well, you're, again, I'm, I'm very, as we discussed before, and I've been following your stuff online, and of course, we've known each other for a lot of years now, but um, I've been really heartened by, you know, reading what you've got going on in, in the things you've written up and what you've been involved with, because to me, you know, it's counter to what I think some of the vibe is. You know, if you go to, I don't want to say the average shop, but I've gone into a lot of shops and, and I see plenty more online, whether it's in a Facebook group that, you know, it's a bunch of shop guys talking and there's just a lot of, uh, I don't want to say dread, but a lot of doom and gloom sort of mentalities, uh, that exist. And I think that they could, uh, they could and should plug into something like this for a much more, uh, positive view of, okay, so what are the positives? Let's go in that direction and make the best out of this. And, and it might require a big shift. Do you, um, you know, from like from your perspective now and interacting in a conversation like this and then what you do daily on trying to wrap the OEM level folks uh, heads around this sort of, um, you know, whatever this is, this sort of a plan or this sort of a shift. What, you know, to the audience that's listening, predominantly uh, dealership folks, what sort of things can we tell them to start planning for, start thinking about, start moving kind of toward yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, you're exactly right. Kind of my daily grind, my pursuit is to, and, and I'm kind of the evangelist 
mm-hmm. and the proponent of the, the dealer and all this. But as I'm engaging uh, myself and my team, which I'll tell you the other, the other two partners on in hero hub are uh, a lot smarter than me. Um, I bring the context of the, the dealer, the retailer and the industry to the picture, but I think we're a great team. Um, their background in, in uh, global technology and marketplaces is just an exciting thing to bring to an OEM at the executive level. And we actually, we're actually perf- perform a, a one day workshop for executive teams where we'll walk them through that current landscape and something that's always surprising to these executive teams at the OEM levels is how massive the business really is online and what, what has been missed in terms of, of, uh, of volumes of OEM accessories and parts because the aftermarket has, have made it easier to purchase their products. And unfortunately, that's been at the expense of dealers as, uh, as consumers have, have not had the options to buy OEM parts in a way that, um, you know, in, in a way that we're talking about to include the dealers and to provide high levels of service and support. Um, the aftermarket business has, has increased. The online business has dramatically increased and dealers and OEMs are feeling that weight. They're, they're seeing um, declines in their after sales business at the OEM level. And I, I, I think there's some dealers that have have at least seen you know lower growth rates or even declines in their parts and accessory businesses. Mm-hmm. There's a way to reverse that trend and delight customers, and so that's what uh, that's what, what our story is, and that's that's what we like to do because we we understand that to pull this off, it's got to be a united effort. Uh, dealers can't do it alone; they need they need the support and leadership of the OEMs. So well, I think there's some OEMs that are taking that lead that are, that will be taking that lead. Well, that's, and that's what I was going to say. Good. Then like I say that I'm envisioning like as a, you know, a dealer listening and I'm picturing them listening saying, okay, but what's going on right now? And obviously like you're saying, you've got the wheels turning in many different, uh, let's call it many different places throughout the OEM sort of level to do this. Is there anything that uh, right. the lit, the dealer uh, folks listening now, maybe one or two, do you have any sort of action steps? Is there, you should go do this today or as soon as possible, you should start planning for this. Is there something that they can do to begin kind of uh, either wrapping their head around the process or actually moving uh, to where they're going to be more relevant when all these kind of we start shifting? Yeah, I, and I would say invest in the right places in your business. Um, for, for dealers that I talk to, um, prepare for the next wave of and the evolution in this, uh, this, this online uh, enabled retail. Dealers um, play a critical role in, in this next decade, but it's going to look a lot different. So dealers will need to make pivots and, and those pivots would include investing more, no matter how service oriented you think you are, invest in your service department. Um, you know, I hear all the time, it's, 
it's just too hard to hire technicians and dealers um, start to give up on the on the service business. Fight, fight like hell to own the service business, build up a service center that's the best service center, you know, become better than your automotive counterparts if you're if you're power sports and and invest in those service departments. The other thing is just really dial in products that customers expect to pick up same day. Um, that's, that's something that is, is critical is that same day pickup of, of quick, you know, grab and go items. That's so important. And if those items aren't there, that customers expect to be there, they don't expect you to have everything in stock, but the basic items, they come in and it's not available next time. They're just going online. And so, so really focus on that. And then finally, the last thing with, with unit sales processes, um, being, making it easier, like no matter how easy you think you think you've made it to buy a, a Polaris Razor or a Harley Davidson motorcycle, however easy you think you've made it, you've got to rethink everything and make it even easier for the customer to make a purchase and, and to accommodate and figure out that customer journey for the new rider um, and, and what that looks like. So really focusing on that and reinventing that process is, is really important. Uh, dealers will succeed. Um, it, it, there's going to be some pivots, though, that, that have to be made in order to provide the level of service that customers expect. Okay. <clears throat> and so, you know, those listening, hopefully in their brains, they're, they're imagining the scenario of, of, you know, obviously the shift that's already occurred with, you know, some of your parts and accessories business to, to, you know, easy button, click a thing and it shows up at your doorsteps, you wear your underpants and go to the door and get it. No big deal. <laughs> but obviously that being one phase of it, but like what you're saying, um, you know, don't take that lying down. In fact, you know, we've got to retrain by doing and, and being the better example in the ways we can and the way dealerships can, uh, wrapping their head around that. And, and, um, in the coming years, I don't, I mean, I don't know how many years, you know, we have till you imagine that sort of a scenario can start to play out. Obviously there's software is involved and other different things, but dealerships can, you know, even today begin, like you say, to stock, items that are expected same day they can begin you know do you have this yes i do have this okay great i'm going to come get it okay great do you want me to schedule you know with service to get that installed no i'm going to do it myself i mean i don't know not that dealers don't do that but obviously that shifted mentality so they're not the dealers who already are feeling a bit of a pinch aren't feeling out of business right at the next sort of level of this yeah and i i would also say i i omitted but but being a community builder and connect, having deep connections with the riding community in a way that you become a preferred advisor and a friend, um, someone that, that uh, they count on. I think a lot of dealers do that well. I think a lot of dealers do that well. No matter how well you think you do it, do it better. No matter how great you think your service department is, um, invest in adding, do what it takes to recruit another technician even if you think today um, you have enough. And I know some dealers are fighting 
constantly to, to hire techs, ramp up the efforts, mm-hmm. um, because that's, that's so critical. Well, and for that, isn't it, um, you know, you ramp up your, your recruiting, but also ramp up your ability to groom someone who might show, you know, pain, groom. Absolutely. Yep. Good yep. point. Yep. Yep. Well, man, this is good stuff. I appreciate you coming on and sharing this. And, and in fact, I, I hope that we can jump on and do, uh, some additional conversation, whether it's this or other topics at some point in the near future, because we definitely, I definitely have many questions for you as you begin to disclose kind of all the, uh, whether it's, you know, the sort of the consumer, um, information that you've gained, you know, doing your research, um, the direction that you're headed from the OEM level and, and then some, uh, but I appreciate you coming on to do this. Any sort of, uh, final words for the, the crew listening? I'll leave the final word to you. You, you do such a good job. I'd like you to take it home. Well, uh, no, I appreciate being on and, and it's been fun as always. Um, love listening to your podcast. You had a tremendous amount of value. So well, thanks a lot for having me on today. I appreciate that very much. I must be doing something right. If, if, uh, if you're willing to listen to this and you're this far in how we're over an hour in so far, and that's uh, about my threshold for where I think most folks want us to be. I know some folks are listening to us driving on the road. They're sitting in their office. They're sitting at home doing other things. So hopefully if you listen to this far, you, you think there's some value in this. And um, I definitely want to be able to grow this into, I don't want to grow it out. I just want to make sure I grow it into the audience that needs to hear, which currently uh, we're just, we're talking uh, power sports and the like dealership uh, interacting folks. So if you know somebody that should hear this, please share it. Um, feel free to send me any questions you have. You know, you can send them to me at uh, dealershipfixit at gmail.com. I encourage you, if you uh, are on LinkedIn, check out uh, Jared Burt on there and uh, and follow, if nothing else, follow his articles because he's, he's definitely one to follow and keep you on the loop on the front end of, of all these sort of shifts. So, Jared, thanks for coming on. Guys, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey guys. Hey, we just finished up the uh, episode number 40 with Jared Burt. And, you know, after he and I hung up, I got thinking and I wanted to come back and do kind of a uh, post uh, post episode, um, sort of just quick follow up. Things that, you know, occur to me and pop out to me is, um, you know, uh, dealerships, you know, and except for those of you that are multi-store, uh, part of a group or something like that, you know, we're, we're all off on our own islands. Um, I still, you know, I still put myself mentally as though I'm in a dealership, like I'm working at a dealership because I work for a dealership. So instead of working inside of a physical dealership, which I also do many days a week, um, you know, I actually work into dealerships, but I just kind of wanted to point out that I, I definitely align mentally with sort of the issues that you guys are up against. And I don't know if I pointed it out strongly enough, how much uh, an example like this with what Jared does uh, currently with, with hero hub and some of his other endeavors he's got going on um, are ultimately championing. It's, it's to continue to keep you guys relevant, even when maybe you're not acting in a way uh, with the shifts in technology that are going to keep you relevant. So I like his approach because it really made me feel like, yeah, man, this guy's got our back, you know, when I learned he's doing all this. And and again, I don't even work at a dealership. I just work with dealerships. Um, So I just wanted to kind of push that point home a little bit harder at the tail end of this. Um, You know, if you've got any sort of uh, 
conversation, splitting hairs, any sort of uh, additional level of insight you need from this to understand it, uh, please feel free to reach out to me directly, as I'd mentioned. You can also see the post uh, on social media. I'll have it on several places. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn is probably the best place for this thing right now, although I know probably a lot of you guys are, are not on LinkedIn. It's kind of becoming the new business Facebook, so you might want to get on there if you're not. But uh, anyway, feel free to link up uh, with me, um, but let's continue the conversation. I hope to have Jared on again in the future uh, with more of this and an and ongoing sort of fashion, but uh, I do want you guys to know that it's my firm belief that he's out there um, back in your play and making sure dealers continue to be relevant for that those consumer experiences. Um, they want them. Um, he's going to work it from uh, from the manufacturer side and making sure that's a reality. Uh, but again, you know, take this opportunity to uh, to do some of the stuff he mentioned in the action steps to make sure you're shifting yourself as a dealership to be a part of that and be uh, continue to be relevant and available for those consumers. So, thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.